Food is culture. Food is the lens into everything, in my opinion. So I think food is very tied to a society. Food, it can be both positive and negative in our lives. Food is really the seed of the city. Food and memory and, and psychology totally bound up in each other. To me, food is connection. Food is belonging. Food is an integral and important part. It's something that you would see in all traditional, cultural, and religious ceremonies. I am Leon Lady, and for this program, I'll be sharing my personal preferences of food, and I'll be talking about the cultural significance of food and other aspects of food, from how food shapes our own identity to the link between food and memories, with the two food historians we have today, Dr. Ashley Young-Rose and Dr. Rachel Loudon. In every winter season, I find myself craving a warm plate of alcida. Alcida is this traditional sweet dish in Saudi Arabia. It is sort of like a pudding, and it is made up of cooked wheat with added butter and either sugar, honey, or date syrup. What you add depends on your own preference, but I like it with sugar and butter. That's how my mom makes it. For some reason, my mom would only make it in winter, and in those days, my family would go outside to the backyard, snuggle under one long, thick blanket, and wait for my mom to finish and bring her delicious and warm asida. In the last four years of living in Ireland, I've never missed the winter season in Saudi. But in the last winter break, I stayed here and didn't go back to Saudi Arabia. In spending winter here, I got to see what a traditional Irish Christmas looked like. And for me, the way I observe a new culture and a society is through food. So I got to see what Irish people serve and eat in their traditional holiday through all the Christmas special meal deals I found in Tesco and Mark Spencer, from the thick gravy sauce, the roasted turkey, and the plum pudding, a traditional Irish Christmas pudding, which in trying, I found it to be more cakey and different from Alcida, the pudding my mom makes, that has more of a thick porridge consistency. But like Ireland and pretty much everywhere else, food is the center of traditional holidays and seasons. For those like me who wanted to be with their family but had their travel disturbed this year, I find simple things like cooking and having a meal that you would normally have back home with your friend and family can propel you to a different country in a different time. Food is a great, powerful connector. With all this interest and love I have for food and the study of food, I did a major in food science. I majored in journalism. And by the time you hear this program, I probably have submitted my final year dissertation. But my free time is preserved for food and the study of food, as I spend a lot of my time in summers in the kitchen trying new recipes, perfecting all the recipes, or visiting my older sister Sarah and just calmly watch her as she makes a three-tier cake for a special delivery. Hi. 
This is Sarah. Unlike me, she's a professional baker and a full-time food content creator. When one of us bakes or cooks something new and it gets the approval of everyone in the family, we don't share the recipe unless the other person gives a one recipe pack. It is a big deal. If you want the recipe to my pumpkin latte donuts, then you better give me your recipe for the peanut butter cookies. And many of the public programs that I work on have been uh, suspended. You know, I do live cooking demonstrations at the museum on our kitchen stage normally, um, in addition to other work, you know, exhibition work and whatnot. This is Dr. Ashley Young-Rose. She's a food historian at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Ashley grew up learning how food is made and distributed as she watched and worked alongside her mother in their family's gourmet grocery food business that lasted for 72 years. So my family's background has absolutely shaped who I am as a person, but also, you know, that part of myself that is my profession. And, you know, I grew up around my grandfather, around my grandparents and my mother and aunts who Every day, we're working so hard to keep their business alive. Their gourmet grocery food business is what it eventually became, you know, from a a side-of-the-road street food stand, eventually to multiple gourmet grocery food stores in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the United States. I saw this picture on your blog where you, I think you were making a pizza. What? You were 10? That was so cute. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was one of those stories of I was standing on, you know, like a milk carton, like a box, trying to, you know, be tall enough to reach the counter, whether it was stirring a big, um, you know, pot of soup that one of our, um, you know, Italian cooks was making. Uh, we we hired some really fantastic local cooks to to prepare certain soups and stews that we sold at our store. Um, I I learned so much from them, also from my German grandmother. And you know, it's it's just a beautiful thing to have these kind of almost informal apprenticeships as a young child to to learn this culinary knowledge, which is passed down generation to generation and often through just observing and and chatting and cooking alongside your elders. It's a really beautiful thing. Do you have a favorite childhood memory involving food? That's such a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. So we would often try to find the best products to sell at our grocery stores. And we might have a new vendor come to us and say, we have the best, you know, grass-fed beef in the country. You need to try this and sell this steak at your, you know, at your store rather than the one you have right now. And so my mom would bring home the current steaks that they sell at their store plus this kind of new, this, you know, this proposed distributor steak. And we would do blind taste tests. And my mom would label the steaks on the dinner table after she cooked them and prepared them steak A or steak B. And she would never tell us which one was which. And she'd say, okay, I want you to try these. And I want you to tell us which one you think is better and why. And she did this when I was like six years old. I mean, I, she taught me at such a young age to kind of have discriminating taste, to think about 
you know, the flavor that fat brings to meat or the texture of different kinds of steaks, whether they're, you know, the original animal was grass fed or if it was fed off of corn or some other kind of product. So I do have really fond memories growing up of being like a, a taste tester, feeling like I, I had some role in shaping my family's business and the kind of products they sold it, it made me feel uh, special, you know, and I was just a a little six-year-old girl and my brothers were helping out too. I have three older brothers and my cousins, you know, we were a little pack of us running around, 11 kids uh, of the three sisters who owned the business. Your graduate research explored the intersection of race, ethnicity, and gender in American food culture and economy. What do you believe shapes the American cuisine today? I think migration is so key in understanding the food culture of this country. And I hesitate to even use food culture or food food economy in a singular sense because the United States covers a vast amount of land in North America, right? And there are different, you know, there's political borders defining our states, the 50 states that make up the U.S., but there's also regional, um, you know, regional areas that are defined by the environment or by culture or community identity. And there are just so many different and varying food cultures from the U.S. South, where you have cornbread and you have delicious fried chicken and barbecued pork and, you know, okra, stewed okra and other kinds of staple foods. And and compare that to New England, right? And a fall harvest festival where you're going to have cranberries in your dessert. So you're going to, you know, have turkey on the dinner table, roasted turkey or, you know, squashes and other fall fall foods versus California, where you might have those fresh, you know, you might have avocado, you might have fresh citrus fruit, you might have fresh fish coming from the coast. I mean, there's so many different variations in U.S. cuisine. But I think at the heart of all of this, is the influence of migrants throughout the nation's history, bringing food cultures with them from across the globe. In talking about the influence of migration in the U.S. food culture, Dr. Ashley gave a good example of how a once-migrant cuisine became central to American identity. In the 1860s, many migrants from China came to the West Coast to build the transcontinental railroad connecting the east and west of the United States. These workers hired a cook who would feed them as they worked, and they often hired a Chinese chef that would import ingredients like dry meats and dry vegetables from China, bringing those flavors and preferences with them. Then many of these migrants opened up restaurants in Chinatown in San Francisco that later spread across the entire country. And now, Chinese food in America is one of the biggest food cultures across the entire nation. I asked Dr. Ashley if there are any food cultures whose culinary contributions might not be widely recognized. In New Orleans, the city that I study in in Louisiana, when people think of New Orleans, right, it is a part of the United States, but it's a city that has a reputation as being somewhat um, quote-unquote exotic or being um, a little bit different than other cities in the United States. And it's so often associated with French culture. People think back to its French cuisine when it was a French territory in the colonial period. And what's interesting, it was actually also a Spanish territory as well. Um, 
and you know people often forget that but they do acknowledge generally in cookbooks if you see a cookbook written about modern new orleans cuisine or creole cuisine as it's often called you know they might make reference to the colonial period and say there's long standing influences from the french and spanish here in new orleans but what i find interesting is that these narratives often overlook later migrations of people to the city of new orleans one of them being for ashley the migration of sicilians and their contribution to the american food culture is an example of one of the later migration that is often overlooked by people Sicilian Italian Americans came to New Orleans in large numbers and they were the largest migrant group and they brought with them preferences for tomatoes tomatoes became key in creating the base for soups and stews As for the Saudi food culture it has largely developed from the surrounding regions Many of the traditional dishes enjoyed in Saudi Arabia are much like any other Middle Eastern cuisine that you would find in the neighboring countries of the kingdom like Yemen, Oman, and the UAE. In fact, most of these countries have been swapping recipes, flavors, spices for centuries. So it is hard for me and for the matter of fact for anyone to really pinpoint where a dish originated. Saudi Arabia is about 30 times bigger than Ireland with a population of 33.7 million people. This was estimated back in 2018. But like Ireland, Saudi Arabia is made up of counties, but we don't call it counties really. We call it provinces. The kingdom is made up of 13 provinces, and the traditional Saudi cuisine varies and is different from one province to another. A typical Saudi meal is a blend of wheat, rice, milk, chicken or lamb, dates, yogurt, potatoes that are delicately flavored with rich spices. The Saudi food culture follows this culinary code for the most part, but the country does not lay an indisputable claim to one dish, and that is kebsa. Kebsa is a delicious blend of basmati rice cooked with a variety of meats, vegetables and spices. The beauty of traditional kebsa is the way it is cooked. The word kebsa actually comes from the Arabic word kebs, meaning pressed. The ingredients for kebsa are traditionally cooked together or pressed as the word suggests in one big pot. In Saudi Arabia, kebsa is prepared with all kinds of meats, including chicken, beef, lamb, Fish and shrimp options are also available as well. Most kebsa is flavored with a combination of cloves, cardamom, saffron, bay leaves, black limes, or limes that have been dried in the sun. And like any other family in Saudi, kebsa is a staple dish in our household too. But what I believe is different and unique in my family is that there is always a new non-Saudi dish on the dinner table. My mom always tries to include new dishes from other food cultures. Growing up, I remember my mom coming back from the bookstore with a new cooking book every week. Some days she would cook a recipe from one of her Chinese cooking books. Other days she would try and make an authentic Italian pasta. There's always something new to try. 
seeing my mom take notes of new recipes from a cooking program on TV or reading her latest cooking book and watching her chop a variety of different vegetables that I've never seen before that she recently bought from the Asian market played a major role in my interest in food. I was always interested in food from um, my childhood on. Uh, once I left home, I enjoyed cooking. This is Dr. Rachel Loudon, a food historian and the author of an award-winning publication, Cuisine and Empire, Cooking World History. Like me, Rachel was also influenced by her mother. She grew up on a traditional family farm in west of England. Her father was a Cambridge educated and a farmer, and Rachel's mother was the traditional image of a farmer's wife as she cooked everything from scratch. Rachel taught at the University of Hawaii, and during her time there she got to see this clear presence and appreciation of food in the Hawaiian culture and society. In talking about the food culture in Hawaii, Rachel describes the deep connection between food and society there. Let me go to Hawaii, where I began to write about food. There in Hawaii, um, you had three very different groups of people, equal numbers of each. There were about a third native Hawaiians, people who had come originally a thousand years beforehand from the South Pacific and then from New Guinea. And then you had about a third of the people were of uh, roughly Anglo origin. They were English or Americans who'd arrived in the islands. And then the third third were Asians, um, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, Filipinos. And they had nothing in common. They didn't have a history in common. They didn't have a religion in common. Some had indigenous religions, the, there was Christianity, and there was Buddhism. They didn't have dances or um, songs or literature in common. And what I realized in Hawaii was that people used sharing of food to negotiate across these yawning gaps in communication. So the legislature started the year with a potluck um, where all the different uh, communities brought their food. Politicians had um, political, their political campaign literature was cookbooks where they would have somebody Asian give an English recipe and somebody English give an Asian recipe or a Hawaiian recipe because that meant that they were coming together. In looking at social structures and food choices in a society, you would see that there's a direct link between the two. Your place in a society kind of defines, constructs or limit what you eat. And I believe this has become more evident in the past few years. So I asked Dr. Rachel about whether there is a correlation between social structure and food choices. Traditionally, um, and still now, food marks class boundaries. 
Um, also, of course, religious boundaries, national boundaries. But um, the way the rich showed that they, or the powerful showed they were different from other people, was to have different ways of eating and different foodstuffs. And to a large extent, that still goes on. You know, you will hear people today, um, well, it's, say, oh, they eat canned food. And that is very dismissive today. Uh, once canned food was for the powerful, now canned food is for the poor. And so people will laugh at people who eat canned food. And it's a way for them to say, we are better than those people. This is the calm before the storm, before the surge. And when it comes, and it will come, never will so many ask so much of so few. We'll do all that we can to support them. In March 2020, when Ireland first announced lockdown, all of my friends packed their bags and booked a flight back home. But when I went online to book a flight to Saudi Arabia, the Saudi government announced the closure of its border. So there were no flights to or from Saudi Arabia. I was devastated when I knew. I mean, to be living alone through this pandemic, it was just mentally challenging. I cringe every time I think of those days when I lived alone and didn't see anyone for three full months. By the end of April, the Islamic month Ramadan began. In Ramadan, Muslims across the world fast from sunrise to sunset. When Ramadan began, I was in the middle of submitting my assignments, preparing for my third year final exams. Mind you, I was fasting for over 18 hours. It was hard in the beginning, but it didn't really take me long to get used to it. Fasting while studying wasn't the hardest part. Being away from my family during Ramadan was. Ramadan is a time where families get to visit and be with their relatives. You would see houses and streets decorated with Ramadan light decorations, and of course all these special Ramadan dishes and sweet. So to be alone during a pandemic and to miss out all of this was heartbreaking. It's the equivalent of, let's say, an Irish person celebrating Christmas alone in a foreign country that doesn't celebrate Christmas. My parents try to make me feel at ease by FaceTiming me as I break my fast. They would say things like, see, it's like we're here with you. It is true though, those daily FaceTime calls made me feel connected to them, but I felt more connected to my family and the whole Ramadan vibes when I took time out of my day to cook a special Ramadan dish. In making these dishes, I recalled special memories I have long forgotten. Cooking these dishes brought an unusual feeling of contentment. It occurred to me then that food and memories must be linked, and the smell of food can evoke memories long buried in our consciousness. Food memories like these are very common. Researchers have long studied the link between food and memories. In my interview with Dr. Ashley Young-Rose, I asked her if she ever had any of those rare moments where food connected her to a special memory. I often have very strong memories that are triggered when I smell something that is familiar, that reminds me of, you know, 
my grandmother's cooking and and my grandmother's been dead for over 20 years you know one of the ingredients that she often used in her soups and stews uh, was pickling spices german german pickling spices that you would normally put you know cucumber and vinegar and these pickling spices in a jar and you'd make a a quick pickle out of that but she used to put it in her soups and stews and i remember i was going through my mother's spice cabinet one day and it was just smelling different spices and i came across this pickling spice and i smelled it not really having used it before in my own cooking and i just like was transported back in time to when i was five years old standing at my grandmother's side watching her cook you know a beef vegetable soup on the stove and just like you know it's like tears welled up in my eyes because it was just such a powerful moment. After listening to all of this, you must think this girl must be overweight with all this love and passion she has for food. But I'm not. It is just food and being in the kitchen is very therapeutic for me. And it has been for as long as I remember. And being around a mother and an older sister who are into food and cooking has boosted my knowledge and skills in food. As summer approaches, my final days in Ireland are coming to an end. And this chapter of five years is almost complete now. There are many things I would definitely miss about Ireland. The fresh Irish country air, its cozy cafes, the food, and most importantly, the snacks here. I'll be sure to stuff my suitcase with Toyota Crisp and Berry's Tea. I always bring a box or two when I go back home in summer. Sure, you can find tea everywhere, but honestly, there is nothing like a strong cup of Irish tea. It just hits different. Food and Connection Lockdown was produced and presented by me, Leigh Young Lady, for TU Dublin School of Media.